Uh, what an appropriate event for the uh, sermon series that we're going through as well. Look forward to seeing you all Saturday night. As we continue this series, The Story of Reality Navigating Today's Worldview Divide, you'll notice that each week we're taking one big question involved in forming a worldview. And what we've said is that forming a worldview is a little bit like putting together a puzzle. Uh, if you've noticed, actually, behind me on the stage, we've started to put this puzzle uh, together because each piece fits with each other piece, and they are interlocked and interrelated, though that might not be totally intuitive at times. But we start with the origins question, uh, because how do we know uh, what is our ultimate meaning and purpose if we don't know about the origins question or where we've come from? And today, we talk about the morality question, which is tied very directly to our question last week about meaning and purpose. We really can't know what's right and wrong unless we know what something is designed for. Uh, if you had an appliance in your house, like let's say you had a, like a waffle maker or something like that, and, and you started using that waffle maker to cook hot dogs, I would come to you and say, well, let me explain the purpose of a waffle maker. You're using it wrong. But I wouldn't know what's right or wrong with your waffle maker unless I knew what a waffle maker was designed for. Just like that, we can't really answer the morality question until we answer first the purpose and the meaning question. And so that's what we did last week. Noah Graves did a fantastic job. Can we thank Noah for his awesome job last week? Thank you, brother. <laughs> Setting this up really well. So today we talk about the morality piece, and this is a very important piece. So let me begin by saying this. Recently, Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin did a talk at the Gospel Coalition, and uh, I, was, I was attending that uh, conference this year when she got up and she held up this small flag. You probably have seen a flag, something like this. Um, it, the flag reads like this. In this house, we believe black lives matter, uh, love is, I'm sorry, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, and kindness is everything. I saw this in many different places. It's a flag, it's a bumper sticker, it's a t-shirt. Maybe you've seen something like this as well. It's a multicolored sign, and it is saying a lot of things about morality. It is saying something about racial injustice. It is saying something about LGBT rights. It is saying something about abortion. It is probably saying something about climate change. It's saying something about immigration. Those are all moral statements being made. Some of them you might agree with, some of them you might not agree with. In case you didn't notice, though, one of the things that this flag is saying is that, hey, you, you evangelical Christians, you guys are kind of jerks. You, you, you evangelical Christians, you guys are like on the, the wrong side of history on so many different issues. Now, our first instinct when we see a flag like this is to get defensive and say, gosh, these people are... They hate us. This, this all can't be true. But then the more you read about the flaws of uh, history and the blemishes of the Christian church, the more you realize that a response to a sign like this might need to be a little bit more nuanced and reflective. There might be some aspects of this sign that are absolutely antithetical to a Christian worldview, but then there might be other aspects of this sign that make a decent point for which we may need to repent. The reason I start here, though, is because you need to know, if you don't know already, you need to know uh, that there is a growing sentiment in our society, in our culture, that Christianity is not just not the correct guide to morality, it's more pronounced than that. The prevailing thought in our current cultural moment is that Christianity, and maybe religion in general, is actually, actually a hindrance to morality. 
that Christianity is actually a barrier to morality. See, scholars and cultural commentators have all agreed that the question of apologetics in our generation has changed. A generation ago, the question was simply this, is Christianity true? And today, uh, the people who are living in the millennial generation and Gen Z are not asking that question anymore. The question has shifted in our generation to this question. Now the question is, is Christianity even good? Is Christianity even a good thing? Is this good for our culture? Is this good for society? Is this, is this good for my children and my grandchildren? Is this even good for me? That's the question our culture is asking. Friends, that's not a simple question, nor does it deserve a simplistic answer. The answer to the moral questions that we're going to ask today have enormous implications for our lives. Today's message will take us into three different movements, and I'll, I'll put the outline up here on the screen so that you can see where we're headed with different excerpts from the book of Colossians, which we've been using throughout this series. We're going to talk about point number one, the rise of moral relativism, and then point number two is the, the problems with moral relativism, and then point number three is the surprising pathway to true freedom. So maybe you're here today and you're a Christian. And uh, you've encountered some of these critiques, and you're wondering, how exactly am I supposed to live in this day and age? How do I engage with my friends or even my family members who may come to different conclusions about morality? Their puzzle piece looks different than mine. Their worldview is different than mine. How do I engage skillfully in conversation? Or maybe you're a parent or a grandparent wondering, how do I shepherd my children through this day and age? That's a really good question. Or maybe you're here today and you're still exploring Christianity for yourself, and, and we're glad that you're here. A lot of the things that we do here are for you, and we, we encourage you to take as much time as you need to go through that discovery tunnel. But I would encourage you to keep an open mind about this message today because there are some significant issues involved in a secular worldview that deserve your undivided attention that you need to wrestle with. And so wherever you are today, I think there'll be some relevance to this message in our lives. Before we do that, why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, we pause for a moment knowing that these are tumultuous times. It is hard to know how to respond and how to live skillfully among those around us. Would you find us to be faithful? Would you find us to be always prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have within us, but with gentleness and respect? Would you help us to be salt and light? Would you help us to see the wisdom of living according to your word, but also may we live in such a way that our lives display a saltiness and an attractiveness toward those around us who may not even know what they're missing. We ask, God, that you bless our time in your word. Give us insight from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one, the rise of relativism. As we begin, I want you to just remember the words of Colossians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul said this, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Now, a fine-sounding argument is any argument that sounds fine to you. Any argument that sounds fine is a fine-sounding argument. I believe, personally, that moral relativism is a fine-sounding argument. Let me start with some definitions. Absolute morality is the belief that there are moral standards that are objectively true. They apply to everyone, everywhere, even if people don't know them, even if people don't believe them, even if people are indifferent toward them, they are still true and binding. 
Moral relativism, on the other hand, is the ethical theory that denies that there are any objective universal moral principles that are valid or binding for everyone. Rather, they believe moral standards change in relation to individuals or in relation to societies. These standards are not external, they are relative to the individual and relative to the society. And so this means that moral standards might be appropriate for some people, but they are not appropriate for other people. And in this view, morality changes over time. Now you might say, how did this become popular? Well, the basic critique of absolute morality uh, or, or absolute truth in general is that absolute morality imposes too much power. That is the accusation. That is the objection. Absolute morality restricts freedom. If you say you have absolute morality, if you say you have absolute truth, well, then that, that tends to undermine the freedom of other human beings. People who hold to absolute morality tend to oppress other people who are different from them. They tend to impose their worldview onto other people who disagree with them. This view is just too restrictive upon people's freedom. It's like a power trip. Absolute morality is the enemy of freedom, and and it it it, it harms freedom. It 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 erodes freedom. And furthermore, it's said that those who hold absolute morality are just closed-minded and unreasonably confident. Let me see if I can give you an example of this kind of thinking. Dr. Russ Landau notes in his standard textbook on the fundamentals of ethics that you can pick any blowhard, tyrant, or political fanatic, and there is one thing they all share. They are all ethical objectivists, meaning they all hold to absolute morality. Therefore, those who hold to moral absolutes are thought to be not just wrong, but dangerous. If I could just give you a popular illustration of this, I think it might be helpful. And for this, I'm indebted to my good friend, Steve Welch. Thank you, Steve. If you've ever seen the Star Wars prequel films, it tells the backstory of how Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader. Something for people like me who grew up in the 80s did not know how that was possible. But if you've seen the prequels, then the mystery is solved, right? Here's the essence of that story if you're not familiar with it. Anakin's strong passions ran afoul of the Jedi Order's notions of the need for detached emotional control of oneself. In particular, he was forced to keep his unauthorized relationship and then marriage to Padme a secret. But when he foresaw her death in childbirth, he was willing to tap into any source of power that could preserve her life, even if it meant learning the ways of the dark side of the Force. So in the film, The Revenge of the Sith, where he finally succumbs to his long-foreshadowed fall, in the ultimate showdown between Anakin and his mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, we have this exchange as the two square off with their lightsabers. Anakin says this, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy. And Obi-Wan Kenobi, the great wise Jedi sage, says this, only a Sith deals in absolutes. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. Friends, that statement was not an accident. It captures the spirit of our age. Do you see how we've been trained by our culture to see absolutist thinking as a dark and scary thing? It's the stuff of terrorists who blow themselves and other people up. Only the Sith deal in absolutes. In other words, those who dare to impose the standards of morality that they have as right and wrong and good and evil onto other people, people like evangelical Christians, we 
Yes, we are the dark side. So the argument against absolute morality is not just that it restricts freedom, but it also says that morality, don't you see, can't everyone see, that it has changed over time. Doesn't everyone realize that it's been marked by today and historically by fierce disagreements? After all, take a look at this picture that was from the 1940s. At one point, we thought pregnant women could smoke and, and children could use DDT to, to keep insects off of them. Mo most people hold very different moral views than their grandparents. And so the moral relativist says moral standards change over time. We see this in cultures and in communities and time periods such that what was perfectly acceptable in one generation in the next generation is totally unacceptable. Therefore, morality is relative. How many of you have had a conversation that ended like this? Well, everybody has a right to their opinion. You have your opinion. I have my opinion. Maybe we're both right. Maybe we're both right. That's relativism. Remember the claim. Remember the charge. Remember the objection. Relativism is true because absolute morality restricts or undermines freedom, particularly religion and religious morality undermines freedom. In fact, the charge is more than that. It's that religion and Christianity actually becomes a barrier to morality. Recently, Nobel Prize winning physicist Steven Weinberg said this, religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without it, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. And so beliefs like the evangelical position on traditional marriage or the rise of religious extremist groups like ISIS in their disgusting mistreatment of women and children have made this kind of thinking and this claim much more widely accepted today. Religion gets in the way of morality. How do we respond to that? Well, the first thing I would say is it doesn't fit the data. One problem with this claim is it just doesn't match the data. For example, in the 2018 book, The Character Gap, Christian Miller observes that hundreds of studies actually link together religious participation with better moral outcomes, including less domestic violence, more charitable giving, more volunteerism, more giving of blood, and lower rates on 43 different crimes on the scale. Does religious belief really become a barrier to morality? The data does not back that up. Remember the words of Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul said, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Friends, moral relativism is a deceptive philosophy. It is hollow. Do you see that word hollow? That means there's nothing in the middle of it. There's nothing in the center of it. It's hollow. What should be in the center? Well, hold that question for later. Notice it says people here who hold to deceptive philosophies, they've been taken captive. They are ensnared. They are enslaved. They, they are in great danger. We are to have compassion for them. So what do we say to this? Well, we say, yes, of course, cultures and traditions change over time. Of course they do. But recognizing those differences and changes, some of them arguably good, 
should not cause us to abandon the conviction that certain inalienable moral truths are binding for all people everywhere. It's always wrong to murder an innocent person. It's always wrong to engage in sex trafficking. It's always wrong to commit child abuse. We who hold to the Christian worldview can hold to such things, and we say sin is sin wherever and whenever, committed by whomever, which leads us to movement two, the the problems with moral relativism. Remember, relativism, the belief that there's no universal standard or truth, all truth is specific to its culture and time. Now, there's a lot of issues with this. I only have time to name three. First, moral relativism is self-contradictory. If morality is rooted in the individual or in society, there's no space for one position being correct over and against another position. Therefore, relativism is a system which actually generates contradictions. It's like an engine that spits out contradictions. If morality is dependent on the individual, what do you do if two individuals disagree? If there's not truth that both parties can appeal to as an arbiter, might makes right? How do we solve that kind of problem? Two people on the opposite side of a moral debate must both be correct. For example, if a pro-choice advocate says abortion is morally right and a pro-life advocate says abortion is morally wrong, in the view of moral relativism, you would have to say both individuals are correct because morality is rooted in the individual. But that's not logical. They can't both be correct. It's a contradiction. Okay, Dave, maybe it's not individual. Maybe it's, maybe it's the majority in a society that gets to decide what's right and wrong. But what do you do when you have one society that has a majority that believes one thing, and then you have another society that has a majority that, brings, that believes the exact opposite thing? What gives you the right to intervene in that society? If one culture says, love your enemies, and another culture says, eat your enemies, who's right and who's wrong? The answer, according to relativism, is they're both right. It's just a personal preference. Now, while at first blush it seems like relativism is a humble approach on moral issues and religious claims, it actually turns up to be quite arrogant. Like, if I say Islam can be true for you while Christianity can be true for me, when I do that, I'm actually taking neither of those worldviews seriously. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, tolerance is the virtue of those who believe in nothing. Ultimately, I I think we would have a lot more respect for one another if we would just be willing to disagree on what we disagree about. To hear more about those disagreements between Christianity and Islam, Saturday night, 6.30. See you there. Relativism means the, the moral outlooks of one society cannot necessarily be superior to another society. Relativism would mean the moral outlooks of Hitler or Stalin are just as plausible as those of a Nobel Peace laureate. Moral relativism also means we can't make anything like moral progress. What is moral progress? After all, to measure progress, you're going to need some kind of transcendent standard. But with relativism, there is no transcendent standard. So a relativist can't even, can't even complain about how we need to make progress or how there's a lack of progress. They can't complain about what's wrong with the world. Nothing is right or wrong with the world. How do you even have a debate with someone who has this worldview? I saw this humorous meme on Facebook the other day. I thought it was appropriate for the sermon, so here it goes. The game show is called Facts Don't Matter. 
After one contestant answers, the game show host says, sorry, Arthur, your answer was actually correct, but Paul shouted his opinion louder, so he gets the point. And an extra bonus point also goes to Sue as she was offended by your answer. Now, this is a little bit humorous, maybe extreme, but it kind of speaks to the spirit of our age. I shared this picture in my message a few weeks ago that I think applies here as well as a principle. Without the foundation of Christianity, there is no basis upon which anyone can make any moral statements. There's no such thing as moral ground. We cannot even make statements like men and women are equal. We don't have any authority to do so. Rebecca McLaughlin says, when you take Christianity out from underneath of the foundation of your ethical system, it feels at first like pulling the Jenga piece out from the tower in order that you might build a higher moral tower. But the reality is the whole thing's about to come crumbling down. Or, Rebecca says, it's less like pulling a Jenga piece out and more like pulling the pin on a grenade. This thing's going to blow. A relativist can't complain about what's wrong or right. They can't even complain about the problem of evil in the world. One theologian put it this way, when you say there's such a thing as evil, you must assume there's such a thing as good. When you say there's such a thing as good, you must assume there's such a thing as a moral law to differentiate between good and evil. But when you say that there's such a thing as a moral law, you must also assume that there's such a thing as a moral law giver, but that is what the anti-theists are trying to disprove. If there's no moral law giver, then there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, then there is no good. If there is no good, then there is no evil, and the problem self-destructs. See, relativism blows itself up. Which leads us to point number two. Moral relativism is incoherent. Relativism is not a coherent philosophical system. It is riddled with contradictions, both logical and experiential. To say there is no universal truth in and of itself is a universal truth statement. If I say I have a rule, and my rule is that nobody's allowed to make any rules, I'm making a rule about having no rules. If I say everybody's uncertain about religion, I'm making a certain claim about religion. It's incoherent. It's incoherent, and even if somebody says they believe this, they cannot live like this consistently. Because here's what we like to do. We might not like to hold to an absolute moral standard for ourselves, but we sure like to hold other people to an absolute moral standard, right? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that people who lie don't like being lied to? Have you noticed that people who steal stuff don't like it when you steal their stuff? Have you noticed that cheaters don't like to be cheated on? See, here's what we do. When it comes to this moral standard that's outside of ourselves, we grab it when it's convenient for us, but then we let go of it when it's inconvenient for us. That doesn't make any sense, especially if that moral standard doesn't even exist. It is incoherent. Here's another funny meme from Star Wars. This one's kind of made up. Obi-Wan says, Anakin, Chancellor Palpatine is evil. Anakin responds, from my point of view, that's an absolute. Obi-Wan says, oh, shut up, you know what I mean. <laughs> you can't help but to make absolute statements. It's just part of how the world works. To say that there are no absolutes is an absolute statement. Jedis use them all the time. But why would people choose a worldview that is so incoherent, you might ask? Well, that is a really good question. 
which leads us to critique number three. Critique number three is a little bit more spiritual. Moral relativism, I believe, is rebellion against God. John Piper, in his 2007 conference talk on this topic, said, the claim that there is no one standard for truth and falsehood that is valid for everyone is rooted most deeply in the desire of the fallen human mind to be free from all authority and to enjoy the exaltation of self. People don't embrace moral relativism because it's philosophically satisfying. They embrace moral relativism because it is physically and emotionally gratifying. It provides the cover that they need to do whatever they want to do. Relativism is a revolt against the objective reality of God and his standards. When relativism says that there is no standard of truth or falsehood or what's good or what's bad or what's right or what's wrong, that is treason against God. Relativism is a deceptive philosophy it does not come from God. It does not come from Christ. Piper says it this way, we are not playing games here. Relativism leads people away from a love of the truth and so enslaves them and destroys them. It leads people away from God, away from Christ, away from recognizing their own sin and away from recognizing God's moral law and ultimately away from the gospel. Now, wouldn't it be like our enemy to create a system like that? I don't mean to sound harsh. I don't mean to sound like I'm without compassion or grace or mercy. The people who hold to this worldview have been ensnared. They've been entrapped. They're in bondage. And they need to know what is true. They need to know the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 8 when he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Dave, okay, I get the philosophy here, but bring it down to the ground where the rubber hits the road. How do I have an actual conversation with my family member or my friend who comes from a different worldview, who, who doesn't agree on these things? How do I do that with grace and truth, with firmness, with kindness? Let me just give you a practical example. Last month, during Pride Month, I was at Walmart in the cereal aisle, and I came across this cereal. You probably have seen it together. It's called uh, you've seen it as well. It's called Together Cereal. It's made by Kellogg's right there. As you can see, as little kids are sitting down to eat their cereal in the morning, they're encouraged to choose their own gender and fill in the blank. So these are moral issues. These are moral claims. They're everywhere. If someone says to you, you know, I, I appreciate this cereal box. I agree with tolerance. I don't want to spread hate. You know, this is fine with me. I don't understand how you could hold a position an absolute moral position on traditional marriage. How do, you, how do you respond to that? Well, let me share with you just practically something called the answer-don't-answer answer strategy. I get this from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 26 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, at first, it's like, this is why I don't read the Bible, Pastor Dave. It contradicts itself, right? But if you read it a little bit more carefully and a little bit more closely, you realize that what the author of Proverbs is teaching here is actually quite profound. What he's saying is that this is how you interact with a fool. Now, a fool in the Bible is not like, it's not like God is, is uh, uh, doing name-calling here. The fool in the Bible is somebody who has rejected God, rejected all of his moral truth, and it's, it's an irrational and foolish position, right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so we are not to answer a fool according to their folly. 
Meaning, if a fool wants to set the terms of the argument with you by saying that morality is relative, you are to reject those terms, that you are not to answer according to their folly. They are foolish terms. Don't embrace the unbeliever's starting point. You come from your own starting point, lest you become like him. Instead, we are to answer fools according to their folly by exposing the foolishness of their arguments to keep them from becoming wise in their own eyes. Now, that might sound kind of complicated, so let me bring it down to earth with this picture. How many of you have seen the Roadrunner cartoon? Am I old? The Roadrunner is around, right? Wile E. Coyote? Come on. This is classic, right? So I don't know why, but every time the Roadrunner, Roadrunner would chase Wile E. Coyote off a cliff, he didn't realize that he was not on solid ground until about six, ten feet away from the cliff, and the Roadrunner would kind of stick his tongue out, and then he would realize, oh, there's no ground underneath my feet here, and phew, he goes plummeting down to the ground. This is what the unbeliever is doing. They think that they're up there in the air, but they don't realize they have no ground underneath of their feet. And what your job is to do is to show them that there's nothing underneath of their, their worldview. You're to expose the worldview of moral relativism as foolish, showing them that it's contradictory, it's incoherent, showing them that they're actually stealing from the biblical worldview in order to argue against the biblical worldview, and that they have no place to stand. If someone says the position of traditional marriage is wrong, just remember three words. By what standard? I hear you using the word wrong here. Where do you get your idea of right and wrong? By what standard are you judging my view to be somehow right or wrong? Who says? Me? You? Our society? How do we get to what's right and wrong according to your worldview? Because it looks to me like you're standing there in midair. From my worldview, I have a foundation upon which I stand. I have the moral law of God, and he has told us what is right and wrong. I'm a Christian. I believe he's revealed himself through general revelation and special revelation. And in his word, he gives us a traditional moral ethic for marriage. Take a look at Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, wives, submit to yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. As Christians... We believe God defines marriage and God defines sexuality. And so we have to take these scriptures very seriously. And we believe kids need both mom and dad in an ideal situation. And we believe that Christian marriage is that ideal. Now, Christian marriage has always been countercultural. It's always been countercultural. In the Greco-Roman world, it was fine for men to sleep with other women, for men to sleep with other men, for men to sleep with young boys. This was like the, the, the first century uh, culture to which Paul is writing. And the early church, he says, I want you to be radically different. One man, one woman commit to, together for, for life. That was very countercultural then, and it still is today. We believe marriage is actually a divine picture from heaven. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, and we are his church like his bride, and, and, and marriage is a picture of God's faithfulness to us, his, his people, and this is why we think marriage is between a man and a woman, not because we want to spread hate, not because we want to spread intolerance, it's because like Christ, marriage is a picture of love across difference. Marriage, if we take the illustration from heaven, is a picture of self-sacrificial love that denies sometimes our own desires for the good of the other. Marriage in the scriptures is a picture of this life-creating, flesh-uniting 
overwhelming, committed love, never-ending, exclusive love for our partner. And in that way, we reflect a picture of heaven. Marriage points us to the gospel. Friends, if someone asks you why you believe in traditional marriage, tell them the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. I know it's not very popular today, but hey, it's not about what's popular. A generation ago, pregnant women were smoking and little kids were putting DDT on themselves. Let's not go for what's popular or widely accepted. J.R.R. Tolkien has a poem about this in The Lord of the Rings that I just love. It kind of speaks to this whole idea of the recovery of ancient truths. And he writes this, all that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken. And the crownless again shall be king. Which leads us to movement three. The surprising pathway to true freedom. Now, some of you in the audience might be frustrated by the fact that up until now, up until this point in the message, I haven't even defined morality. Did you notice that? What is morality? How do we even define this concept? As I looked through a contemporary ethics textbook in preparation for this message, I could not find a definition. The author even said, it would be good for me to start with some sort of definition of morality. But he said this, I'd certainly like to, but I can't. I can't. Fundamentals of Ethics, Landau, Oxford Press, 2018, standard ethics textbook in college. Why can't he? The reason he can't is because there is no widely agreed upon accepted definition of morality. There's no unifying theory about the good life and what's right and what's wrong and moral duty. It's not unanimous. There's a lot of difference out there in philosophy, so it's impossible for secular ethics to even define it. The reason, the Apostle Paul says, is because it's hollow. There's nothing in the middle of it. There's nothing in the center of it. Can't you see that it's, it's just got air on the inside? Can't you see that Colossians chapter 1 is true, that all things were created by him and for him, and in Christ all things hold together? See, this is the kind of argumentation Paul is giving us. Remember the basic critique in our day, right? Absolute morality undermines freedom. That's the critique. That's the objection. Maybe freedom is a lot more complex than you think it is. Maybe the morality of the Bible is a lot more liberating than you think it is. This week, I've been following Sydney McLaughlin. She's one of this year's Olympic athletes. She's 21. She's from Jersey. Uh, she's favored to win the gold in the women's 400 hurdles. I think the match is tomorrow. She just broke the world record in this event on Friday. She's unbelievable if you saw that race. The cool thing about her, in my opinion, is her unabashed commitment to Christ. In a recent interview, she said this, I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. I don't deserve anything, she said, but by grace through faith, Jesus has given me everything. Records come and go. The glory of God 
is eternal. Thank you, Father. What's her definition of freedom? It incorporates discipline. See, an Olympic athlete knows that the essence of true freedom actually involves great restriction. The essence of freedom actually is a lot more complicated than our culture thinks it is. The essence of freedom actually involves great discipline. And she understands and she knows that. I know the older I get, the more I realize I cannot eat whatever food that I want to eat. It just doesn't come off the way it used to. Freedom, I found, actually comes through restriction. Friends, the Christian worldview understands freedom so much differently than our secular culture does. What looks like freedom to one party feels like bondage to the other, and what looks like bondage to one party feels like freedom to the other. How do we decide? The only way we can decide is to appeal to the authority that is above all of us, the one that is above our heads, the one who sits enthroned above all, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he tells us how we were designed to live. In the Christian worldview, it's not hard to define morality at all. It's simply this. Morality is simply the ethical standards which reflect the character of God. This is what the law of God is. It's a reflection of God himself for us as people. This is why he gave us his law. We are made in his image and we are meant to reflect him. Remember Noah Graves talked last week about our purpose, our meaning in life is to know God and to make him known as his image bearers. We are to reflect him and glorify him through our lives. To the degree we get that right, it's right. To the degree that we get that wrong, it's wrong. This is the same standard Paul upholds in Colossians. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 9. He says, do not lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Do you see Paul's motivation for morality here? The reason lying is wrong, says Paul, is not just because you're going to break trust with other people, though you are. The reason lying is wrong is because God is not a liar and you're made in his image and you were meant to reflect him. And when you lie, you don't reflect him properly. The reason stealing is wrong is not because you're going to take other people's things that they worked hard for, though that's true. The reason stealing is wrong is because God is not a thief, and you're made in his image, and when you steal things, you don't reflect him properly. The reason it's wrong to commit adultery in marriage is not just because you violate a sacred trust and covenant, though that's true as well. The reason it's wrong is because God is always faithful, and you're made in his image, and you are meant to reflect him. This is our purpose, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is why we hold to his moral standard. But there's just one problem, and it's a pretty big problem. Big problem for me, big problem for you. I live my life in such a way that doesn't add up to this moral standard. And I would imagine that even you would admit that you live your life in such a way that doesn't add up to this moral standard. So what do we do then? Well, this is where the good news gets really good. Take a look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. The Apostle Paul brings forth the gospel like this, saying, Christ forgave us of all of our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it 
to the cross. Christ came, and though we deserved his just punishment, he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died in our place for our sins, then rose victoriously over the grave. And when we place our faith in him, we are now made right before God because of his righteousness, not our righteousness. And then after we receive that, we want to live a life that is pleasing to God now. That is the good news of the gospel. There's a poem that says, When I say I am a Christian, I'm not trying to be strong. I'm professing that I'm weak and pray for strength to carry on. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not bragging of success. I'm admitting that I failed and cannot ever pay the debt. This is the essence of what it means to be a follower of God. As someone once said, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody that there's somebody who can save anybody. And now after receiving this grace, this mercy, this unbelievable love from our compassionate Savior, now that I've seen that he laid down his life for me, I want to lay down my life for him. As one hymn writer said, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. And now I pursue him out of joy and out of a desire to deeply glorify and reflect my Savior. Puritan author Sam Bolton says it so succinctly, so well. I read this a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, this is just right. He said, the law points us to Christ for our justification, and Christ points us back to the law for our sanctification. Why? Because that's where freedom is found. Right? The psalmist said, I I rejoice in your law, for you have set my heart free. Your commandments are not burdensome. They show me how to live to reflect and glorify you. In Paul's summary of the Christian life and a biblical morality, I'll close with the words of Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love, Paul says elsewhere, is the fulfillment of all of the law. This is our biblical morality, that we might live lives of compassion and humility and meekness and love for neighbor. Why? Because that reflects our loving and gracious and compassionate God, and our lives are all about reflecting him. As the worship team comes, I thought, how would I make a sign? What if I were to make a flag and put it outside my house? What would my sign say? And and I don't know, but maybe my sign might say something like this. In this house, we believe that Jesus is Lord. All people are created in God's image. All have sinned against him. We are saved by grace through faith. His word is true, and the truth will set you free. Can we pray? Our Father and our God, we come to you with a great sense of humility, knowing that none of us here today have really lived up to your ultimate standard of right and wrong. And you are a holy God. We could not even come into your presence had you not made a way for us through the sacrifice of your one and only Son who took upon 
himself the just punishment for our violation of your law. And all we can say is, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me so great a salvation, so rich and so free. And now after having received this grace, our heart's deepest desire is that we might reflect you better. And so would you show us ways in our lives that we might need to make a small step of adjustment and that we might need to make a different choice so that we might better reflect and honor you with all that we are. We pray, God, that you would do that for Christ's sake and for his reputation, our Lord and our Savior and our all in all. In his name we pray. Amen.